My name is Eric Gaskell, and you are listening to the Distorted History Podcast. To speak the truth, the truth, frankly and boldly. I can give you merry tales and joyous laughter. Unreasoning, unjustified terror. A long struggle for freedom. It really is a revolution. After years of hard work, after years of searching for a direction to call their own, following Sid Barrett's descent into madness and departure from the band, after several albums where they worked more as individuals than as a band, on Dark Side of the Moon, the members of Pink Floyd finally worked together and combined their talents, especially those of Roger Wooders and his lyrics, and David Gilmour and his musical sensibilities, to create something special. The album was a massive success, which earned them exactly what they had long wanted, but this success brought with it its own set of challenges. Before I go into detail about the aftermath of the grandest success of Pink Floyd's career, like always, I want to acknowledge my sources for this series, which are primarily Nicholas Schaffner's Saucer Full of Secrets, The Pink Floyd Odyssey, and Nick Mason's Inside Out, A Personal History of Pink Floyd. And for this episode in particular, Glenn Povey's and Mark Blake's articles on LighterSound.com titled Pink Floyd Wish You Were Here, Inside the Album That Nearly Ended It All, and Writing Bitter Acrimony and the Story of Pink Floyd's Unsung Masterpiece Animals, respectively. With all that being said, let's begin. The most immediate result of Pink Floyd's sudden success was the simple fact that with such a significant growth in her fan base, their tours, and by extension their accompanying light shows, were now going to have to be bigger and more spectacular than ever. To accomplish this, the band acquired the services of Arthur Max. Max, like several members of the band, had training as an architect, but had gotten to start working live events when he operated the spotlight during the three-day-long Woodstock Festival. Max would oversee the inclusion of films being played on a large round screen behind the band, and over-the-top effects like a 15-foot wide model plane flying on wires and lit by spotlights as it crashed into the stage in a ball of fire that was synced up with the explosion and on the run. The band's upcoming tours of America would serve to highlight how much they had grown. The first tour which stops in big cities like New York and LA, as expected, did well. So they tried a second tour, which focused on the middle of the country, where they were suddenly selling out 10 to 15,000 seat halls in places they'd never been before. While this may sound great and all, there was a downside to this newfound fame. Before Dark Side of the Moon, when Pink Floyd were playing to audiences full of their devoted fans, the band could hold their attention and command the room even in between songs. This had allowed them to create a consistent atmosphere throughout the entire night, and to start songs like Echoes with its light tinkling notes properly. These new larger crowds, however, brought a new breed of fan to their shows. Fans who would chat loudly between songs or shout out the name of their favorite song. All this behavior accomplished, though, was to destroy Pink Floyd's carefully crafted atmosphere and upset the band. The ever-irascible Roger Waters in particular found the whole experience enraging. Having to deal with this new breed of fan at their shows was just one of the problems that they realized came along with massive success. Another drawback the members of Pink Floyd would discover were their expectations and pressure to fall up Dark Side of the Moon with something equally as great. As troubling and unwelcome as this pressure might have been, it was only compounded by another issue they discovered after finally hitting it big. The problem of motivation. 
the members of Pink Floyd had labored for years, gradually improving as musicians and songwriters, growing their fan base in the process. Then all of a sudden, with Dark Side of the Moon, they had achieved all of their career goals in one fell swoop. They had their big album, their number one on the Billboard charts. The fame, the money, the huge tours. Everything they had ever wanted or hoped for. What then was left for them to achieve? And what made all of this worse for Roger Waters in particular was the realization that fame and money didn't change him. It didn't rid him of his natural bitterness or his feelings of alienation. Instead, he discovered that fame and money didn't really change anything. Quote, if you're a happy person, you were before and you will be afterwards. And if you're not, you weren't before and you won't be afterward. The success of Dark Side of the Moon also meant that the band had to become a business. In fact, some of the profits from the album would be invested in the production of the now-classic film Monty Python and the Holy Grail, which is great and all, but what this meant for Pink Floyd was that they now had to spend more time handling that side of things, which took away time they would have spent creating. One part of the business side of things was their finally leaving their American label capital behind. After years of feeling that their American label weren't doing enough to support them in the United States, Pink Floyd signed with Columbia Records instead. So just as Pink Floyd became a superstar act for Capital, the proverbial golden goose up and left for the competition. Ultimately, what all these pressures and issues meant was that the members of Pink Floyd found themselves simply overwhelmed when confronted with trying to figure out how to follow up an album that was so successful it was hard to fathom. This created a writer's block which paralyzed the band. Luckily, EMI, who despite the change of representation in America, were still in charge of their European distribution, put no additional pressure on the band to release a second Dark Side of the Moon, according to Nick Mason. In fact, Pink Floyd had no obligation to produce their next album on any specific schedule. So after their American tour, the band took a summer break before returning to the Abbey Road studio in the fall of 1973. To try and spark their creativity and to subvert expectations by doing something radically different, the band set about trying to create an album out of sounds created by anything that was not a musical instrument. From the start, the band knew the planned album, titled Household Songs, was going to take a long time to create. The most laborious and time-consuming part happening in the beginning as they worked to capture all the different sounds which was good since this allowed the band to push off the task of actually making music for a while yet. So Pink Floyd avoided the task of trying to follow up Dark Side of the Moon by recording the sounds of sawing wood, slamming hammers of various sizes, and hitting trees with axes to create percussive noises for this project. They stretched rubber bands between tables and plucked them for bass sounds, and discovered that by stretching out a roll of tape to different lengths, they could create different notes. The members of Pink Floyd also added to the soundscape by plucking egg slicers, spraying aerosol cans, pouring water into buckets, smashing light bulbs, and even doing the trick of running your finger along the rim of wine glasses filled with varying amounts of liquid to create notes. From all of this experimenting, they ended up producing three loose rhythm tracks before finally admitting the obvious. This wasn't working, and that their actual instruments all created better sounds than what they were coming up with. But something else was equally true and obvious as well. They still weren't mentally ready to write music again. To quote Nick Mason, We were a bit nervous about carrying on. So for the first time since the band formed, the members of Pink Floyd, who were so used to living and traveling together, took an extended break from each other's company. 
Much of the next year, 1974, then was dedicated to their personal lives. Several band members had families which included young children who they wanted to spend time with. Plus, they also wanted to spend some of their newfound riches and enjoy life. Nick Mason would purchase a number of vintage cars, and David Gilmore built up an impressive collection of vintage guitars, including the first Fender Strat ever made, while Rick Wright used his money to purchase Persian carpets. But not everyone was enjoying themselves, as Roger Waters' marriage was seriously falling apart and would end in a bitter divorce in 1975. Also during this time, while Pink Floyd were on hiatus, some of the members of the band took the opportunity to help out some of their fellow musicians with their own projects. David Gilmore used this break from Pink Floyd to help an up-and-coming band called Unicorn launch their career, and he also discovered Kate Bush, a teenage singer-songwriter with a lot of talent. Gilmore became her mentor and even helped to convince EMI to sign her to a recording contract. Nick Mason, meanwhile, ended up producing and playing on an album for drummer Robert Wyatt of Soft Machine. Originally, Robert had just wanted Mason to produce a solo album, but on the day that Nick received that request, he also heard the news that Wyatt had fallen from a window and been paralyzed from the waist down. Six months after the accident, though, Robert was ready to handle vocals, keyboards, and various forms of percussion for his project, but he couldn't operate a full drum kit. So in addition to being the producer, Mason also stepped in on drums for Wyatt's solo album. These sessions, according to Mason, had a nice relaxing atmosphere to them, something that couldn't be said about Pink Floyd's most recent experiences together. Yet as nice and enjoyable as his experience might have been, it still didn't mean that he or his bandmates were ready to record their own album. That's not to say Pink Floyd didn't do anything during this span, as they would get together for a short three-week tour of Europe while they tried to figure out what to do next to follow up Dark Side of the Moon. In the run-up to this tour, Mason and Waters got together and put together a series of films that would be played throughout the performance, further adding to their elaborate live presentation. The three-week European tour, though, was a mistake, according to Mason, who recalls it as a particularly gloomy time for the band. Having been separated for so long, the band was out of practice, and so the first week ended up being a glorified rehearsal. Now their performances really started coming together for the second week of the tour, but by the third week, all they were thinking about was getting back home. Not helping matters was the fact that according to Mason, the members of the band were all more interested in booking squash courts than they were perfecting their set, which meant their concert suffered for it. Pink Floyd was in serious danger of falling apart and dissolving completely in the wake of their greatest success. The band manager Steve O'Rourke has stated that each member of the band at one point or another during this time vented their frustrations at him and threatened to leave the band. These fractured and strained relationships were on full display when Pink Floyd returned to the studio in January 1975. The advent of multi-track recording didn't help patch things up either, as rather than bringing the band together, it made the studio process an isolating affair. Then there was the problem of tardiness by all the members of the band, which was made worse since they couldn't even show up late together. According to Nick Mason, two would show up on time and have to stew while waiting for the other two to show up. But the next day, their roles would be reversed, as the two who were late the day before would have to wait frustrated for the other two to arrive, guaranteeing that everyone was some level of upset with the others constantly. These early sessions were especially rough, as it didn't seem like they had their hearts in it. According to Roger Waters, quote, At times the group was there only physically. Our bodies were there, but our minds and feelings somewhere else. 
David Gilmour was said to have been especially frustrated with his bandmates' issues, with Nick Mason being a primary focus of his ire. You see, Nick Mason was never a great drummer, and with his marriage falling apart, he has admitted his depression meant he was essentially disinterested during this period, and as a result, his drumming suffered for it. As difficult as these sessions were, unlike the failed Household Songs project, they at least had a starting point this time around. While preparing for a tour of America a year earlier, they had rented a rehearsal space which allowed them to just play together like they used to, without the pressure of being in the Abbey Road studios. From these sessions came three songs that they worked on during the tour. They had taken to calling these songs Raving and Drooling, You Gotta Be Crazy, and Shine. The last of these would prove to be the starting point and inspiration for Pink Floyd's follow-up to Dark Side of the Moon. Shine had started out life as a mournful four-note theme David Gilmore played on his guitar, which brought up memories of the long-departed Sid Barrett and Roger Waters. Again, like for Dark Side of the Moon, the ghost of Sid Barrett haunted the band, and Roger in particular. So he really wanted to get the words right, as his feelings toward their former singer were complicated. According to Waters' quote, It couldn't have happened without him, but on the other hand, it couldn't have happened with him. In many ways, they owed their success to their early days together, but at the same time, Roger had been the driving force that removed Sid from the band. He seemed to feel some guilt for that, but also recognized that there was a reason why they had done what they did. Shine, which would obviously be renamed Shine on You Crazy Diamond, provided a starting point for the themes for their follow-up to Dark Side of the Moon. And just like a similar meeting had helped flesh out the ideas for that previous album, a band meeting to try and get to the bottom of their issues helped to provide inspiration for Roger Waters' lyrics, as he took notes on what was being said. Where Darkseid was focused on the concept of madness being caused by the stresses of the modern world, their as-of-yet untitled follow-up would focus on the concept of absence, loneliness, isolation, detachment, sadness, regret, and guilt, some of which were already apparent in Shine. Yet while Pink Floyd seemed to have finally conquered the writer's block and now had a direction, the composition of the album would become a bone of contention. Waters felt his lyrical concepts should be allowed to evolve and sit in the listener's mind before the musical ideas, which were Gilmore and Wright's primary focus, were allowed to develop and evolve themselves. Then there was the question of what to do with the other two songs they had been working on in addition to Shine, You Gotta Be Crazy and Braving and Drooling. Gilmore wanted to include them because they put a lot of work into them and he didn't want to just throw that all away, especially since they were having a hard enough time writing as is. Waters, on the other hand, didn't think they fit in with what they were working on now. Instead, he wanted to split Shine On You Crazy Diamond, which had become a sprawling epic track in the tradition of Adam Hart and Mother and Echoes, in half so that it would bookend the album. Then to bridge the two halves together, Waters wanted to write new songs, which better fit with the vibe and themes of Shine On, since he felt that Gotta Be Crazy and Raving and Drilling were too angry and aggressive sounding for an album focusing on sadness, isolation, and guilt. Ultimately, while Gilmer didn't understand what Waters was getting at, both Mason and Wright did, and thus the guitarist was outvoted. As they were working on these latest songs, like they had with Dark Side of the Moon, Pink Floyd took a break from the studio to test out their latest compositions on the road, this time in America. The band's stay in LA was a particularly memorable one. They started out surprising and confusing the local newspapers by outselling the Rolling Stones, when they were just this band of four relatively anonymous figures that the members of the press weren't familiar with. 
Pink Floyd would break the box office records at the Los Angeles Sports Arena when they sold out all 67,000 tickets for their four-night stay in a single day. Then when they added a fifth night, that too sold out within hours. Yet not everyone was happy to see Pink Floyd come to town. The LAPD and their chief, Ed Davis, the self-proclaimed meanest chief of police in the history of the United States, would declare that Pink Floyd's concert was a, quote, illegal pot festival. As a result, the LAPD officially sent 75 officers to arrest concert goers, although the venue disagrees with this and estimates the number of cops there to be closer to 200, who in turn arrested 511 concert goers for possessing marijuana. The LAPD was so overzealous in their actions that the band was forced to ram through a police barrier to get to their own concert. Back in the studio, they were without Alan Parsons' capable skills, after offering him little in the way of compensation, instead claiming that it would be a privilege for him to come in and work for them again. He responded by turning them down and launching his own performing career with the Alan Parsons Project. The album, which they would title Wish You Were Here, opens up with the song that provided the inspiration for its overall direction. Shine On Your Crazy Diamond, which is divided into two main halves to start and end the record, is further divided into nine sections, but I'm just going to talk about it in totality here. The song opens up with a remnant of their household song sessions. Among the various objects they had recorded during that time were wine glasses filled with various amounts of water that they then ran their fingers along the rims of. They then mixed the tones down into chords, which were then assigned to sliders in the studio. Through this process, they had created, using the technology of the day, an instrument similar to the glass harmonica, which used the same principle and I believe was invented by Benjamin Franklin. Lyrically, the song grew out of feelings about Sid Baird that were conjured up in Roger Waters by the four-note phrase David Gilmour started playing on his guitar. There is no mistaking that the song is about Sid if you know anything about his history. Sid, as you might recall from the first episode of the series, as a young man was seemingly seen by everyone who met him as this surefire talent. He was this dazzling diamond of a human being. Sid was so talented at everything he put his mind to, they were sure he would be a success. Then he went, for the lack of a better term, crazy, possibly driven by his use of LSD, or reaching for the secret too soon, according to the lyrics. Then as his LSD use grew out of control, he developed this blank gaze, where he just stared at people without recognition, which is referenced with a line about eyes like black holes in the sky. The references to the painter and the piper are also clear allusions to Sid, since painting was his favorite pastime and what he went to school for, and Piper is both a reference to their first and only album together, and a reference to his favorite childhood story, Wind in the Willows. There's even seemingly a recognition that they, the other members of Pink Floyd, didn't help Sid in his time of need, with the line about being the target for faraway laughter, as instead of seeking help for their clearly troubled friend, the rest of the band said chose to mock Sid's increasingly bizarre behavior, until it was too late. The song and the album then ends with a mournful rendition of the melody from one of Sid's early hits, See Emily Play, as the music fades out. The second song of the album, Welcome to the Machine, is cold and ominous sounding, thanks in part to the electronic effects from a VC3 synthesizer. Even Gilmore's acoustic guitar sound feels kind of deadened. It elicits this cold, emotionless feel, as it much like the next song of the album are about the corporate side of the music industry that Roger Waters in particular hated. 
Have a Cigar is less cold and has more of a slicker, slimy salesman vibe to it, as Waters focuses his ire on the two-faced nature of the business. The line, by the way, which one's pink, was actually a question that the band had legitimately been asked on more than one occasion. This song, though, would not be sung by either Waters or Gilmore, who since forcing Sid out had been the primary vocalist in the band. This, however, is not because Waters didn't want to sing the track. In fact, Waters increasingly wanted to sing the songs he wrote the lyrics for, which was a change from previous albums, where Gilmore was often chosen to sing on songs he hadn't written. During the recording of the song, though, Waters was unsatisfied with his vocal delivery, partially because his voice was shot after working so long on Shine. As a result, he was having to try and record his vocals for half a cigar line by line, and it wasn't really working out. Seeing this, Wright and Mason suggested that Gilmore try and sing lead for the song. However, he was unsure of how to properly approach the track and its, quote, complaining lyrics. But instead of turning back to Waters, which is what he wanted, they turned to friend of the band English folk singer Roy Harper. Roy happened to also be in the studio to record his album HQ, which Gilmore had played guitar parts for. Roy frequently popped in to see how his friends were getting along with their own project, and hearing about their problems, offered to try and sing the part. He would nail it and be credited for his performance. However, he would not be paid for it. The song ends with radio static as someone is seemingly scanning through the stations. The subsequent radio sounds, which include a part of Tchaikovsky's Fourth Symphony, were recorded from Gilmore's car and are supposed to sound like a person sitting in a room playing along to the radio with their guitar as the next song, the title track Wish You Were Here, starts. The construction of Wish You Were Here was different from a lot of Pink Floyd songs. Typically, they wrote the music first and then worried about adding the lyrics later. This time, however, the lyrics came first, as they were originally a poem written by Roger Waters that he set to music after hearing Gilmore playing a riff on his guitar that he told him to play slower. The writing and recording of these songs, however, weren't the only memorable thing to happen to Pink Floyd during these sessions. On June 5th, the band was rushing to wrap up the final mix of Shine On You Crazy Diamond. They were about to head out on their second newest tour of the year, and this was also the day of David Gilmore and his soon-to-be wife Ginger's wedding. As they were busy at work, one by one they noticed that there was a stranger with them in the studio. He was a heavy-set bald man that none of them recognized. Gilmore recalls noticing the strange figure checking out their equipment, but at the time he was busy and distracted by other things, so he didn't pay the stranger too much mind. He just figured that this man simply worked for the record company. Nick Mason too remembers noticing the strange figure holding a plastic shopping bag with a vacant expression on his face. He however figured this guy had to be the friend of one of the engineers, as otherwise someone looking like he did would have been stopped at the front desk of the studio. Wright similarly recalls entering the studio and more or less ignoring the stranger as he sat down next to Roger Waters for a few minutes, before Roger posed a question to him. Did Rick know who that man was? When Wright responded that he didn't and that he just figured he was a friend of Rogers, Waters then told him, quote, think, think. And so Wright looked again and just kept staring until suddenly he recognized him. It was Sid Barrett. According to Waters, when he himself had first made the connection, he was brought to tears at the change in his old friend. There's actually a picture of Sid at this time in Mason's book, which you can also find online, and the changes in him since his days with the band are really dramatic, so all of their reactions are quite understandable. Unsure of what else to do, and on a bit of a deadline, the band opted to just continue mixing Shine On You Crazy Diamond. 
which meant playing it over and over again as Sid sat there silently, seemingly not realizing that the song was about him. He, however, would offer to join the band again, while also asking them why they kept listening to the same song since they'd heard it once already, clearly not understanding what they were doing. While they weren't about to ask Sid to rejoin the band, they did invite him to join them in the studio's canteen for Dave's wedding reception, during which time Sid apparently upset a few guests with his manic laughter before eventually disappearing without saying goodbye. This would be the last time any of them saw their former singer and songwriter. He appeared as they were mixing a song dedicated to him and then disappeared back into isolation. During the subsequent American tour, Sid's old friend Storm Thurgeson of Hypnosis accompanied the band as he contemplated the lyrics of their latest work, looking for inspiration to design the appropriate artwork to accompany the album. Focusing on the theme of absence, Storm wanted imagery that illustrated an act that was supposed to be genuine, but was in reality an empty, phony, meaningless ritual. The handshake became the obvious choice, especially in the light of songs like Welcome to the Machine and Have a Cigar that focused on the fakeness of the music industry. The picture of the two businessmen shaking hands with one being on fire was inspired by Storm's observation that people withdraw from one another and hide their true feelings out of fear of quote, getting burned. But to make this package extra special and unique, Storm wanted the album wrapped in a dark opaque cellophane that would hide the artwork from the general public. This way, the album would have two covers, one for Pink Floyd fans who bought it and one for everyone else. The record company initially objected to this plan because A, why would you want to hide such amazing identifiable artwork, and B, the dark cellophane wrapping was more expensive than the normal stuff. However, coming off the success of Dark Side of the Moon, Pink Floyd had the clout to get what they wanted. Wish You Were Here was released on September 12, 1975, and soared to the top spot on the English charts in its first week, following suit on the American Billboard charts a week later, making it their fastest-selling record. According to Richard Wright, quote, I think that's my favorite album that Pink Floyd ever did. I feel the best material from Floyd was definitely when two or three of us co-wrote something together. Afterward, we lost that. There wasn't that feeling of interplay of ideas between the band. Pink Floyd, instead of coming together, simply continued to fracture, as they opted to not tour in support of the album. They actually virtually vanished from the public eye following the release of Wish You Were Here. Yet as Pink Floyd withdrew from the spotlight due to their internal problems, 1976 brought major economic issues to Britain. Trade unions went on strike, desperate to have their wages keep up with the rising inflation, in the midst of a crumbling economy. Matters which were not helped out by a heat wave and a near three-month-long drought, which led to failed crops and water rationing. During this time, racial violence started breaking out as well. On one side, you had immigrants who were upset at the lack of opportunities being afforded to them, while on the other side, whites formed and joined fascist movements like the National Front, which apparently is the normal response to people asking to be treated equally. A new music movement would spawn in response to all of this upheaval, Punk rock not only rebelled against both the prevailing politics of the day and societal norms with their dress, hairstyles, and speech, but they rebelled against musical conventions as well, which included the so-called boring old farts who were at the top of the charts. Punks then stripped down rock to its most basic raw form, thereby returning it to the streets, which made a band like Pink Floyd an easy target to rail against. For his part, Nick Mason didn't take much offense to any of this. 
He saw punk as just a necessary part of rock and the music business. The record companies at the time hadn't been investing in new bands, choosing instead to focus on established acts. Therefore, a movement of that sort, which set out to smash the system, was not only inevitable, but also necessary to revitalize the music scene. It wouldn't be until January 1977 that Pink Floyd finally returned to the road for the first time in two years, as they set off on a six-month-long world tour. In the meantime, they had been upgrading and retrofitting a converted chapel they had purchased on Britannia Row. Prior to this, they had simply used the space to store equipment between tours, but now they decided to turn it into a studio of their own, one where they could record their next album without having to worry about the scheduling constraints of Abbey Road and other studios. They also made sure to design their new studio so that anyone could record there without needing the assistance of experts. It was, however, at this time more than a bit cobbled together than what they were used to, so their next project took them 10 months to record as a result, even though this time they did have a starting point thanks to You Gotta Be Crazy and Raving and Drooling, the two songs that they had gotten pretty far along with writing in 1974 before it was decided they didn't fit in with Shine On You Crazy Diamond, and thus were left off of Wish You Were Here. The two songs were harsher in tone, as Wooders took aim at capitalism to fit in with that album, but were now brought back and provided a starting point for this new project. As they started working on these songs again, Gilmore felt You Gotta Be Crazy had too many lyrics for him to sing comfortably, so they started reworking its lyrics at the same time they started working on a new song about pigs. It was at this point that Roger Waters noticed hints of an animalistic theme in their previous two songs, which he could connect to this new song, and thus the concept of the album was created. The theme of animals grew in part out of the shame Waters felt being wealthy following the success of Dark Side of the Moon. Even though he had recently divorced his socialist first wife and remarried the aristocratic Carolyn Christie, who was the niece of the Marquis of Zetland, having grown up steeped in socialist principles, Waters could not escape his own feelings of guilt at being on the other side of the equation. As for the allegorical theme of the album, it is similar to but not a direct recreation of Animal Farm. While it shares the general structure with the pigs being on top and the biggest villains who are aided by the dogs and controlling the sheep, Pink Floyd's Animals differs from Animal Farm by taking aim at the capitalist system. The pigs in their world are pathetic, self-righteous, tyrannical moralists who want to decide for everyone else what is right and wrong. The dogs are then pragmatists and corporatists who only care about clawing their way to the top, while the sheep are the unquestioning herd who are used and abused by the dogs and pigs. But unlike an animal farm, where the pigs are left in total control, in animals, they are ultimately taken down by an uprising of angry and vengeful sheep. However, since two of the songs were holdovers and not specifically crafted to fit in with the concept from the beginning, the album feels a bit more cobbled together, meaning the theme is not as consistent and well-crafted as their previous two albums. Also, unlike the collaborative effort that resulted in their most successful album, Dark Side of the Moon, on Animals, Waters really started dominating the writing process. According to Rick Wright, quote, It was the period when Roger really began to believe he was the sole writer of the band. It was partially my fault, because I didn't have much to offer. Dave, who did have something to offer, only managed to get a couple of songs on there. Now, Gilmore apparently didn't feel like he was being ignored when it came to the creation of this album, but he would agree with Wright in that he didn't feel like the keyboardist was, quote, pulling his own weight at the time. This, though, was probably the direct result of the ugly divorce Wright was going through. He would then describe animals as not a, quote, 
fun record to make. I didn't have anything to offer material-wise, so I was in a difficult situation. Animals opens up and ends with Pigs on the Wing, which Wood has composed and split into two to help give the album an overall shape. It's a love song dedicated to his new wife, Carolyn Christie, and is supposed to be a look at normal people living their lives and relying upon each other to get by, with everything else going on around them. However, the fact that these two very short pieces counted as two songs for Roger Wooders when it came to publishing credits and the distribution of publishing royalties, while the significantly longer Dogs, which David Gilmour shared credit on, would cause issues in the years to come. Which brings us into our next song. What had originally been titled You Gotta Be Crazy would be renamed Dogs. However, since it hadn't been written explicitly for this album, the animal theme isn't as prominent or clean here. The song takes aim at those who would become known as the yuppies and the corporate culture they thrived in. The young urban professionals of the baby boomer generation who according to a Newsweek cover story were quote, focused on aspirations of glory, prestige, recognition, fame, social status, power, money, or any and all combination of the above. These people who were super materialistic were the dogs of Wooder's allegory. The song focuses on their obsession with doing whatever it takes to get to the top, only to be left without any friends or allies after having stabbed so many in the back so that eventually they end up being taken down by someone just like them. The song was composed by David Gilmour, although he has since stated that it's not one of his favorites. It does have its moments though, in my opinion at least. For my taste, the third verse and the instrumental sections are where the song really shines. The next song focuses on the dog's masters of pigs, three different ones. It's the best song off the album and the one that most clearly illustrates its themes. There are three main targets for Wooder's disdain, each representing the types of people he sees as ruining the world for everyone else. The first pig is a caricature of the rich businessman slash mine owner getting fat as he orders his employers to work harder. The second pig, while it could simply be politicians who favor war, money, and mechanization over humanitarian concerns, feels a bit more targeted and is likely Margaret Thatcher. The clearest target by far, though, is the third pig, which represents Mary Whitehouse, who was called out by name in the lyrics. Whitehouse was a former teacher turned self-appointed guardian of British morals. Her clean-up TV campaign basically seems as narrow-minded and as short-sighted as any other moralist anti-art campaign that you can think of, and was just about as effective in the long term. Not only did she go after Doctor Who, really stop them in their tracks, which she called, quote, tea-time brutality for tots, after a character was strangled by a plant in one episode, but Alice Cooper even credits Whitehouse's campaign for making his career in England. Whitehouse had gotten his song Schools Out banned from the BBC, which ultimately helped make sure the song reached number one on the British charts thanks to all the free publicity she had given him. Pink Floyd had also long been a target of her ire for their connection to LSD. Wooders would later state about Whitehouse, quote, we were all incensed about this woman trying to tell us about our morals and trying to censor art. She wanted to censor all culture, which was incredibly irritating. And in particular, he was, quote, incensed by Mary Whitehouse and people who foster sexual guilt and shame. The next track, Like Dogs, was a holdover from their previous sessions and left off Wish You Were Here as it didn't match the vibes and themes they had hit upon with Shine On Your Crazy Diamond. 
and I can't say they made the wrong decision, because no matter what it's called, raving and drooling or sheep, it's a more driving song that doesn't fit with the laid-back melancholy of Wish You Were Here. It fits in better here, as it tells of sheep going from placidly living their lives, actively annoying what was going on around them, to finally being galvanized and taking down the forces oppressing them. When it came to the artwork for the album, Pink Floyd would reject the initial ideas proposed by Hypnosis, which consisted of a child clutching his teddy bear as he catches his parents, quote, copulating like animals, and a staged image of ducks nailed to a wall. Luckily, Roger Waters had a vision of his own. Every day when he drove to the band's new studio, he passed by London's Battersea Power Station. He was drawn particularly to its four phallic towers, and pictured his grimy realism set against Floyd and Hypnosis' typical surrealism, represented by a giant 40-foot inflatable pig that would soon become a part of their live shows. However, during the photo session, the giant pig balloon was too much to control in the inclement weather. Now, the band had taken precautions against this eventuality by hiring a marksman to shoot down the balloon in case it broke free of its tethers. However, on the day of the shoot, the marksman hadn't arrived when they launched their pig balloon, and so when it was caught in the strong winds, there was nothing to stop the inflatable porcine from being carried off at 2,000 feet a minute, which, by the way, was faster than police helicopters, as they would soon discover, when one was scrambled to chase after it. This was not good. According to Mason, quote, This was not a deliberate stunt, and we were well aware that apart from losing an expensive piece of kit, we could cause a major aviation disaster. Lawyers were summoned, emergency plans mapped out, and scapegoats nominated. Luckily, the giant inflated pig, which was soon carried over Heathrow Airport, managed to not cause any disasters before it finally crashed to Earth 20 miles southeast of London. Animals would be released on January 23, 1977, but since the album pretty much exclusively featured long-extended songs, there wasn't anything that was easily playable on the radio, which in turn affected its sales. It would only reach number two in the UK and number three on the American charts, which, while not bad, did not live up to the standards of their previous two albums. This didn't surprise Gilmore, though, since, quote, there's not a lot of sweet sing-along stuff on it. Animals was a more aggressive-sounding album and depressing in nature, while lacking the universal shared experiences of Dark Side of the Moon. Critics, however, embraced the album, even though they had in recent years railed against the band and their banning of the press. Yet here in the wake of the punk revolution, which the critics detested, they were eager to once again embrace Pink Floyd. Animals represented a bit of an end of an era for the band. It would prove to be the last time they really worked together as a somewhat cohesive unit. Nick Mason would state in his book that he liked putting Animals together more than he did Wish You Were Here, as they felt more like a band during these sessions, a feeling he credits in part due to the studio they had created together, which allowed them to spend as much time working as they wanted without worrying about the costs. At the same time, it was a departure from their previous works. The vocal harmonies, slow dreamlike tempos, and Wright's backing organ were largely missing from Animal's compositions. This is partially because it's the first time Wright didn't write anything, but it's also due to Waters' increasing influence. Roger Waters' control over the band's direction would only increase from here. But like always, that is a story for another time. Thank you for listening to Distorted History. Please rate and review the podcast, that really helps. 
Also, if you want to tell me what you want me to research, or if you want to feel special and get episodes a week before everyone else, go to patreon.com slash distortedhistory. So if you have a specific episode topic you want me to cover, be it lore, an album, a band, or even a historic topic, the best way to get me to go down that rabbit hole is to go to patreon.com slash distortedhistory. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter at distortedhistory minus the Y, which is also where I post all the sources for this and all the other episodes. Links are in the description. Thank you once again for listening. Until next time. Mm-hmm.